You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. at this time of the year that we should be talking about the Word made flesh and going through Philippians chapter 2 because that's what this whole chapter is about, the Word becoming flesh. We're going to read verses 5 through verse 8 and we'll open together in prayer. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Pray together. Father, we bow before your word this morning because in it you have given us a revelation of yourself. We thank you that you have revealed yourself in the gospel, in the person of your son, and in your word. We thank you that we can know you. We thank you that you have quickened our conscience to be brought into a relationship with you. Thank you for causing us to recognize that we are sinners and in need of a Savior. And thank you for causing us to be born again to a living hope. And now we need your word in order to know you, and we need your spirit in order to know your word. And so we ask for the ministry of the Spirit of God to be here to teach us. We are not interested in the ramblings of a man, but we are interested in hearing from you today through your word. And we ask that that would be the case to your glory and to your name's glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And what you're about to see this morning can only be described as self-control in action. I am resisting temptation today. And the temptation that I am resisting very strongly is the temptation to preach a series of five or six messages on Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I sat down this last week with pen in my hand and a pad of paper in front of me, and I sketched out on a pad of paper five or six what I would think would be great messages on the subject of the cross. And they just, because my mind is so fertile so so few times in my life, I always try and match up the fertile times with a pen and a paper. And, and so I had five or six messages that I sort of scratched out that I thought, ooh, that would be good. And each one that presented itself, I thought to myself, boy, I need to, I need to hear that, and we need to hear that. And it's like watching a Red Lobster commercial for me. You know, ooh, got to have, ooh, that would be good. And every change of the scene, you know, you start to drool. That's the way it was this last week for me. But I'm resisting that temptation, just like I do Red Lobster commercials. I'm resisting that temptation because I want, I don't want in slowing down through the book of Philippians any more than we already have to lose the feel and to lose the flow of the book. So I'm hard-pressed between the two options, having a desire to depart from the book of Philippians and do a five-week series on the cross, but knowing that it's more necessary for your sake to stay in the book of Philippians. So convinced of this, we will stay on in the book of Philippians, and I will try and condense five messages into one. And we will be looking at Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. He humbled himself, and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's not, in, in not taking five weeks to do a series of messages on the cross, it's not because I don't think that the cross is worthy of that effort. It's not because I don't think that it's worth our attention or our time or that it's not central because it certainly is. Um, 
you can see the centrality of the cross even in as you just read through the Bible. Do you understand that the cross is the central, the central event around which all of the scriptures are written? It's the cross. That's the central event around which all of the scriptures are written. The Old Testament law pointed forward to the need for a sacrifice to bring us to the point of understanding that the cross was necessary in order to atone our sins and to clear our conscience and to forgive us of our wickedness. All of the prophets predicted the Messiah, looked forward to the Messiah, anticipated the Messiah. The hope of every Jew born was that they would be born in the day when the Messiah would come. And then the Messiah came. And then in the Gospels, we get the Messiah and we get the cross in the Gospels presented to us. And then in the epistles, we see the cross preached. And then in the book of Revelation, we see the cross consummated. So all of the Bible, from the, from the book of Genesis to the end, the consummation in Revelation, all of it is written around the cross. If you look at the Gospels, you know what you see in the Gospels? You see in the Gospel of Matthew that two-fifths, 40% of Matthew's Gospel is about one week in the life of the Lord Jesus. Two-fifths of Matthew's Gospel is about one week in the life of the Lord Jesus. Now, he had 33 years to choose from for material in his biography on Jesus. He had three years of public ministry that he could have talked about. And he spends two-fifths of his gospel, 40% of his gospel, on one week. Why is that? Because that one week is the fulcrum of human history. That one week is the fulcrum of redemptive history. That one week is everything that the rest of the Bible is all written about. And the cross. And the rest of the gospel writers do the same thing. The gospel of Mark, Mark spends three-fifths of his gospel on that final week. Luke gives a third of his gospel to one week. And John devotes nearly a half of his gospel, one half of his gospel, to one week in the life of the Lord Jesus. Why is that? Why so much time and attention? Because the cross is central to everything else in Scripture. And the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they wanted us, if we were going to get one thing, they wanted us to get that one thing. And that was the final week of the Lord Jesus, His passion on the cross, and His resurrection. So it's central. It's central to everything we do. It's central to everything we believe. It's central to everything we are, everything we have, every blessing we get, comes because Christ died on the cross. And even before that final week in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, even before you get to the, the details of that final week, you know what sort of looms as a shadow over everything else? The cross. It's always there. Sometimes more visible than others, but always there. Even at the birth, Matthew chapter 1, you shall name Him Jesus. Why? Because He will save His people from their sins. That's the cross. It's right there at the beginning, even in the birth narrative. The cross is there. And then it looms like a dark cloud over the whole life of the Lord Jesus all the way through to that final week. And He knew the whole time everything He did was stepping toward the cross. He knew that was His destiny. He knew that was why He came. He did not come to, to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for others. He knew that. And He alluded to the cross. And He told His disciples, He told His disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem where I'm going to be handed into the hands of Gentiles and I'm going to be crucified and I'll rise again. Everything he did, everywhere he went, everything that he was, was stepping inevitably toward the cross. It's central to everything. And it has been looming over us, really, in Philippians chapter 2, as we've gone through verses 5 through 6 and then 7. We know that we have been stepping down and stepping down and stepping down. And because you know the passage, you also know that the Apostle Paul is going to end that descent. He's going to end that condescension where? At the lowest point that anybody could go 
death. And friends, not just death, but death on a cross. Of all methods of execution, of all manners of dying, of all potential ways of dying and being executed and giving your life, the Lord chose a cross. So today we're going to look at the humility of the cross. We've been stepping down from verse 5. He who existed in the form of God as God, manifesting Himself as God, eternally existent as God the Son. He had equality with God that He did not regard as something to be held onto for His own advancement or His own cause or His own interests as something to be clung to. All of that power, all of the prerogatives, all of the privileges of deity, He willingly laid that aside without sacrificing any of His divine attributes. He emptied Himself. That means He, he literally made Himself of no effect by taking upon that divine nature a human nature. So He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. That is to say that He who existed in the form of God became man in every way that you and I are men. So that everything that we experience that's not sinful, He experienced. Every temptation that we have, He was tempted with. He was in all points tempted as we are. There was a full identification with humanity. Not part God and part man, but what? 100% God and 100% man. Now, if He just stopped with becoming a man, that in itself would be phenomenal, would it not? That the eternal Son of God would span the gulf that exists between the created and the Creator, and that He would become a man. That is condescension that is just... That in itself, friends, is beyond our comprehension. That is beyond our imagination. That is beyond even the ability to express in words or to appreciate. That God would take upon Himself humanity and join Himself with humanity for eternity in the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a stepping down that is beyond comprehension. But that's not the last and final step. There's one more step down that He took. And it was becoming obedient, humbling Himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, <clears throat> even death on a cross. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. There's something at the beginning of that phrase, and I want you to notice it, something that the Apostle Paul has repeated throughout the rest of this passage previously. This is not the first time we have seen this brought up. This is not the first time that we have seen the Apostle Paul emphasize this. He humbled himself. He humbled himself. You've seen this emphasized throughout the passage. He did not regard his equality with God something to be grasped. That was something that he did. He emptied himself. That was something that he did. He humbled himself. That was something that he did. This was not forced on him. Now, do you think there's a difference between the emptying and the humbling? When it says that he emptied himself, what is it referring to? It is referring to the fact that he took upon himself human flesh. That he took upon himself the nature of a bondservant. So the emptying refers to the incarnation. The humbling further refers to what? That's the death on the cross. So what the Apostle Paul is saying is that he stepped down in emptying himself and taking the form of a bondservant, but then he took a step even further down when he humbled himself. He humbled himself. To humble means to lay oneself low. That's what the word humble means. It means to lay low. Jesus did this in, in as pertains to man, in regards to men, he humbled himself, took the form of a bondservant, and he served other men. And he also humbled himself in reference to God the Father, in that he came to do the Father's will. But what the Apostle Paul wants us to catch is that he did this to himself. He humbled himself. In other words, he was not humbled. 
It was not somebody else who humbled him. Pilate did not humble him. Caiaphas did not humble him. The Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees did not humble him. The people who drove the nails did not humble him. The people who spit on him and beat him did not humble him. He humbled himself. He laid himself low. So what the Apostle Paul wants us to realize is that this was something that he chose to do himself. This was a voluntary action. He didn't come to earth and then surprise, whoa, shazam, I'm, I didn't expect to be humbled. No, no, he humbled himself. This was something that he did himself voluntarily. Jesus said, I lay down my life and I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. No man takes my life from me. Did anybody on earth have the power to kill him without his consent? Nobody did. Even on the cross, he could have called 12 legions of angels or 12,000 legions of angels or all of the angels of heaven to take him off the cross. He could have saved himself. But when those people walked by on the road to Jerusalem and they saw the three crosses saying, standing there and they saw Jesus hanging on the cross and the sign that said, Behold the King of the Jews, what did they shout out to him? He saved others, but He cannot save Himself. And you know that's true. He couldn't save Himself and save us. He couldn't do that. So He humbled Himself, and Himself He did not save in order that He might save us. He humbled Himself. That was His action. And friends, it's the voluntary action of humility and humbling that you and I are called to do. The book of James chapter 4, verse 6 says that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble, Therefore, James says in verse 10, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may lift you up. 1 Peter chapter 5 says that you and I are to humble ourselves before God. When you humble yourself, do you know, you realize that it has nothing to do with how you, not so much I should say, not nothing, but not so much to do with how you think of yourself. If you just say to yourself, okay, from now on I'm going to be humble. I'm going to humble myself by not thinking proud thoughts of myself. Is that humbling yourself? How about if you say, I'm going to humble myself by not doing anything for myself. Is that humbling yourself? No. Humbling is an action. It's not just that he did not regard his equality with God as something to be grasped. That is a mental humbling. That's the mind of humility, the mind of Christ. But it has to go further than that. It's not just you saying, from now on I'm not going to think anything good of myself. You can do that and still be a very prideful person. Because you might do that in order that other people might look at you and say, boy, he never thinks anything good of himself. And so you've got glory from that. Humbling is something you do. You know what humbling is? Humbling is when you step down and you serve other people. That's humbling. It's not just what you think about yourself. You can be a prideful person and never think anything good about yourself. Humbling is when you step down and you do the low work so that nobody else has to do it. It's when you step down and you serve other people, you do the dirty work, You make them more important than yourselves. You do something so that they don't have to do it. That's what humility is. That's what humbling is. Humbling is an action that we take. He humbled himself. Not he was humbled. There was nobody who had the power to humble him if he did not want to be humbled. But he humbled himself. And what did he do? He became obedient. That's an interesting phrase, and it opens up a whole a whole host of ideas about the humanity of Christ. He became obedient. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 says, Though He was a son, He learned obedience. How did the Son of God learn obedience? How did He learn anything? That's the humanity of Jesus. That He learned obedience. 
and that he became obedient. And there's something in that that suggests to us that this was not something that he had to do. He was not forced into dying for us. He was not forced to the cross. He was not coerced. It didn't take him by surprise. It's something that he did himself. He humbled himself and he became obedient. And his desire was to do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father was that He would redeem a people for His Son through His Son's death on the cross. And Jesus Christ said, I will obey the Father's will and do the Father's will and not do my own will. And I will become obedient and I will obey even to the point of death. That's the humility. So did He learn obedience? Yes, and He was the perfectly obedient Son. And yet He learned obedience through the things that He suffered. And he became obedient even to the point of death. And do you notice how the Apostle Paul says he became obedient to the point of death and then he, that little phrase, <clears throat> even death of a cross. What's Paul doing? He wants us to understand it goes, it goes farther than just dying. Farther than just dying. He didn't choose death by hanging, death by stoning, death by suffocation, death by drowning, death by falling off a cliff. There are a multitude of ways that the Son of God could have died what way did he choose to die? Death on a cross. Now why the cross? I'm going to get to that in a second. But why the cross? Why did he choose the cross? The cross is the most humiliating, the most degrading, the most shameful death imaginable. The most painful death imaginable. The cross was designed by the Romans, and even those who predated the Romans. Crucifixion was designed by the, in the ancient world to kill in the most degrading the most painful, the most shameful, the most excruciating manner possible. Crucifixion was designed to do a host of things all at the same time. It was designed to kill the victim very slowly. It was designed to strip the victim of every shred of human dignity, human decency, pride, any sort of ego that one might have. It was designed to extract from the victim the maximum amount of pain that a human body could could feel. And if I had a whole sermon to go into for you what crucifixion was and what a victim endured on the cross, it would ruin your lunch, probably ruin your day, and ruin your whole week. It is a style of death. It is a manner of execution whose pain and shame and humiliation utterly escapes modern-day mentality. It, it is utterly beyond our ability to even grasp the type of pain and the type of shame that crucifixion involved. You know, crucifixion victims did not just die from uh, nails being driven through their hands and through their feet. Crucifixion victims didn't just die from the scourging. Crucifixion victims usually died from suffocation. But you know, there were many victims that died before they even got to the point of having nails driven through their hands and feet. Some of them died just from the blood loss from the scourging that was involved and tearing their body, body literally to ribbons of flesh. Some of them died from exposure to the elements, from the heat or from the cold. Some of them died from the lack of blood. Some of them died from, from hypothermia or dehydration. Some of them died from just the agony and the pain and the sheer pressure that is upon the heart and cardiac arrest. Some of them died from suffocation. Some of them died from the spear being thrust into their side. And the Romans were very creative in how they crucified people. Very creative. Anything they could do to humiliate a victim, they did. That's why they publicly, that's why they publicly crucified him. They didn't do it in a corner of a building. They didn't do it off in some deep dark alley away from public view. They did it at Passover when all of the traffic was coming into Jerusalem. 
They did this right alongside the main road into Jerusalem. Three men hanging on a cross. Why? So that everybody coming into Jerusalem could see how the Romans treated their slaves and their prisoners and their criminals. And it was used as a public deterrent. And all the people would come by and they would cast insults and and slander and blasphemies at the people on the cross and they would humiliate them. And contrary to what you see in the pictures and in the movies, crucifixion victims were not hung way up in the sky all the time. Most of the time, they were right down at the level of the ground. They weren't crucified way up above people so that you're looking at the bottoms of their feet. They were crucified right at ground level. You know why? Because all of the riffraff of society would gather around the cross. And they would all gather around there and they would spit on and hurl insults at and urinate on crucifixion victims. And every despicable, unspeakable part of humiliation that you can imagine in your mind the riffraff did. It wasn't just Roman soldiers who did this. All of the scum, all of the scourge of the town would come out because it satisfied their, their lust for cruelty and brutality. And they had a part in it. The scene of a crucifixion stunk with human filth, blood, sweat, and every possible stench you can imagine. It smelled like a sewer. Most crucifixion victims were crucified naked, not with clothing on. And you know what? They would die slowly, not quickly. It wasn't a fast death. Some crucifixion victims stayed on the cross for days before they died. And that was really the fear of Jesus. That was the fear with Jesus and the three others. They didn't want him on the cross during Passover, so the soldiers came to do what? Break their legs. You know why they broke their legs? Because a crucifixion victim with the nails in the hands and with the feet, when you're hanging like that, you're suffocating. You can hardly breathe because all of the force of your whole body weight is on your chest cavity. You can hardly... You can hardly gasp for breath, so they had to pull themselves up on the nails in the hands and on, through the wrists, actually, in the feet. They had to pull themselves up on the nails so that they can breathe. And by busting the legs, they would cripple them so that they wouldn't be able to pull themselves up on nails to breathe. And Romans, according to some sources that I've read and, and sources that I've heard, the Romans actually at times, and this did not happen to the Lord, thankfully, the Romans at times would nail the victim's genitalia to the cross to keep them from pulling themselves up. That's crucifixion. We're not talking about just some average death, a gunshot wound, a knife wound. We're talking about the slowest, most shameful, most humiliating, most filthy, most vile possible treatment that you can, you can even imagine in your mind to do to another human being. Do you know that the word cross in polite Roman society was considered a profanity? You didn't even mention it in some circles in Jesus' day? It was considered a profanity. Cicero, the Roman philosopher, said, let the cross not only be far away from the body of any Roman citizen, but far away from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. Why? You didn't even mention the word cross in polite society because it was a a foul, filthy, stenchy curse word. But then you open up the New Testament, and what do you see? Cross is all the way through it. All the way through it. In his book, The Life of Christ, Frederick Farrar says this, quote, A death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of the horrible and the ghastly, dizziness, cramp, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, shame, publicity of shame, long continuance of torment, horror of anticipation, mortification of intended wounds, all intensified just to the point at which they can be endured at all, but all stopping just short of the point which would give to the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. Just enough pain that they wouldn't pass out from the pain. 
You couldn't pass out from the pain, but it was right at that point where you could almost pass out. You'd almost wish that you could pass out from the pain, but you couldn't. He continues, The unnatural position made every movement painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. End quote. Now, I'm not even going to describe you what crucifixion was like. I'm just giving you just an overview of it. You could do four sermons or five sermons on what crucifixion entailed. This is just, a, this is just in general what it was like. Even death on a cross. Now, why the cross? Why the cross? Why the most shameful method of humiliation? Why the most degrading and the most painful way? Couldn't he, couldn't he just spill his blood and by cutting himself? Or couldn't he fall off a cliff and spill his blood? Couldn't he be hung? Couldn't he be stoned? Was there some other way? Do you know why the cross? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the wisdom and the power of God unto salvation. Why the cross? Because in the cross, God chose the most shameful, the most unattractive, the most foolish, the most, the most uh, offensive manner possible to display His Son and to bear the sins of the world. And so He suffered the wrath of God on our behalf in the most shameful, most humiliating most despicable and despisable way possible. Why? So that it would offend the Jews and it would be a stumbling, or a stumbling block to the Jews and it would be foolishness to Greeks. Because to the Jewish mind, the Jewish mind could never conceive of their Messiah dying, much less dying on a cross. If you had walked up to any Jewish man and said, what, would, what does the law say and what do you say about a man who dies on a tree? They would have quoted Deuteronomy and said, cursed is the man who dies on a tree. He dies under the curse of God. And then if you would ask that same Jewish man, can you ever conceive in your mind of your Messiah dying under the curse of God on a tree? They would have said, no way. No way. That's an, that's an offense to me. To even suggest to me that our Messiah would die on a cross. That's the most humiliating, the most shameful, the most despicable manner of death possible. We don't even, we can't even conceive of our Messiah dying. Much less dying that way. That's offensive to us. That's repulsive to us. We can't accept that. Do you remember what, do you remember what happened when Jesus asked to Peter, who do you say that I am? What do you say? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That means you are our Messiah. That's what he's confessing. You are the Messiah sent from God. You're the Christ. You're the Son of God. That's what we believe about you. Then Jesus starts to tell him, I'm going to Jerusalem where I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And what did Peter say? Far be it from you, Lord. Why did Peter say that? Did Peter not want Jesus to die for the sins of people? No. Peter had no room in his mind for the Messiah to die. That couldn't happen. I just told you, you're our Messiah. We don't have any way. There's no way the Messiah is going to die. So if you're the Messiah, then it far be it from you that you should die. You'll never die. You're going to reign forever and ever and ever and ever and ever on David's throne. That's your destiny. You can't die on the cross. You have to reign forever on the throne of David. So they couldn't even conceive of their Messiah dying. So Peter did what any Jewish man would have said. Far be it from you, Lord, that this should happen to you. Offensive to the Jew. And then to the Gentile. To the Gentile, it was foolishness. <laughs> you mean to tell me that you worship a guy who died on a cross at the hands of our empire? That's your God? Your God was urinated on. Your God was spit on. Your God was beaten. Your God bled and died on a cross publicly, naked, shamed, 
suffering and eventually suffocated on a cross after hours of agony and crucifixion, that's the man you worship? That's foolishness. That's foolishness. So you present the gospel to the Jew, and what does the Jew respond with? Don't offend me like that. Suggest that I ought to worship somebody who died, that that's our Messiah? No way. You present the gospel to a Gentile, and what does he say? That's foolishness. So why the cross? You know why it's the cross? So that at the end of the day, those of us who believe in a Messiah who died on the cross, it might be proven to be that that salvation was of God. There's absolutely the most foolish, the most offensive, the most shameful, the most disgraceful possible message that you and I have to preach is the message of the cross. And to go out in the public streets and polite society and say, look, the God we're asking you to turn to and place your faith in died on a cross. They would either be offended or they would laugh at you. Why? Because that's the most humiliating, shameful death imaginable. Friends, this death did not take Jesus by surprise. You understand that, don't you? Didn't take him by surprise. He knew that that was coming. This was, according to Acts chapter 2, the predetermined plan of God to deliver up his son. You saw it in the book of Isaiah. It pleased the Father to crush him. This was what the prophets predicted. When Jesus came here and emptied himself and took upon himself human flesh, he knew that this is what he was coming to do. It was not a surprise to him. He knew that he was going to die, and he knew that he was going to die on a cross. And he knew all that that involved and all that that entailed. And at no point was God taken by surprise. And at no point did God have to try and come up with plan B or plan C. All of this was the predetermined plan by the foreknowledge and the love of God to deliver over His Son to bear the sins of many. That's the plan of God. didn't take Him by surprise. One thing I want you to notice in the book of Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, do you notice, and this kind of stands out to me now after I, after I realize this and probably doesn't catch your attention right away, but do you notice how the Apostle Paul does not have any mention in the book of Philippians chapter 2 of what the death of Christ means for us? Do you notice he doesn't mention that? A lot of times when Paul mentions the death of Christ, he'll talk about how it secures our salvation or we have forgiveness of sins or we have redemption through His blood or we have the adoption of sons or the sealing of the Spirit or peace with God or access to the Father. But none of that. He mentions the crucifixion, but the Apostle Paul does not pause or stop to apply it to us or to even mention one thing that we benefit from from the death of Christ. Why is that? Why does he not apply that to us? Do you know why that is? It is because the Apostle Paul does not want us thinking so much about what the death of Christ means for us, but rather what the death of Christ meant for Christ. That's the point of Philippians chapter 2. What did it mean for him to die? What did it mean for him to come here? What did it mean for him to lay aside his glory and all the prerogatives of deity and to come here and take upon himself the form of a servant and to be made in the likeness of men and to be found in appearance as a man and then to die. Philippians chapter 2 is about what it cost him to do all of that. It's all about Christ. There's no application of the death of Christ to you and I as far as here's what it means to us. It's all about what it means to him. And that's the whole point. Friends, does this type of humility strike you like it does me as something that you've just you've never seen and you can't imagine in any other experience that you've ever had or any other realm that you've ever been involved in? Have you ever seen in all of human experience anything like this type of stepping down and condescension? You probably haven't. If you can imagine a king laying aside all of his earthly robes, 
taking upon himself a pair of overalls and stepping out into the streets of his kingdom and sweeping the streets and cleaning the sewers. Or if you can imagine the commander-in-chief of a large army taking off all of his medals and all of his uniform and taking an apron and going into the mess hall and peeling potatoes. If you can imagine the commander of a fleet, a commodore of a fleet of ships, leaving the bridge and going down into the coal room and grabbing a shovel and stoking the furnace or cleaning the bathrooms for the crew. Or if you can imagine the the corporate executive, the CEO, the president of a large banking conglomerate, stepping out of his high-rise office, coming down outside, grabbing some Windex and a squeegee and starting to wash the windows on the outside of the, the high-rise. If you can imagine that, that is, those are things that you are not likely to see anytime soon, probably have never seen in your life, and yet none of those even remotely compares to the condescension of the infinite, eternal Son of God stepping out of glory, taking upon Himself human flesh, coming down here and suffering the most vile, horrible, heinous treatment from His rebellious creation. None of those other things even compare. That's humility. Now I want to apply all of this that we've covered in verses 5-8 through the same way that the Apostle Paul does. In order to do that, I need to call to your remembrance back what verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 said. We're to live in unity with each other and in harmony with each other and we are to be of one mind and we are to consider others as more important than ourselves. We are to consider the interest of others ahead of our own. Here's the example. He who had every interest to preserve, preserved none of them. And he laid aside all of his own interests and came here to serve other people. And he humbled himself from the highest position imaginable to the lowest position imaginable. And he did all of that for others. That's the example. So it's almost as if Paul is writing to the Philippians and he's saying to the Philippians, the next time even the smallest self-seeking motive creeps up in your heart, you remember Christ. How can you and I possibly, after reading Philippians chapter 2 and understanding all that is involved in this, how can you and I possibly do anything from selfishness or empty conceit? How can we do that? This is not only exemplified for us in Christ, it is expected of us. This type of condescension. There is no amount of humbling that you and I are even capable of doing that approaches this. If we gave up all of our positions, all of our possessions, everything we have, and just served other people and had nothing, it wouldn't even approach what Christ did. It doesn't even come close. Not even worthy to be compared with that. So is it too much for us to follow that example? I don't think it is, friends. He didn't, he didn't become nothing so that you can become something. A lot of seeker-sensitive churches and a lot of health, wealth, and prosperity gospel preaching like to tell you otherwise, but he didn't become nothing so that you could have your best life now. It's not what it's about, is it? You don't read best life now in verses 1 through 4. You know what you read? Humble yourself and make yourself serve other people. He didn't become nothing so that you could become a better you. He became nothing so that you could make yourself nothing and follow his example. He didn't, he didn't give up his position so that you can attain one. It's not why he did it. He gave up his position to show you what it's like as a boss, as a father, as a husband, as the leader of an organization, as somebody who has a position of power and influence, what that means to step down and to serve other people. That's why he did what he did. Not so you could have everything, but so that you can understand what it means to make yourself nothing for other people. And this, friends, is the heart. This is the heart and soul of what it means to be Christians, to live together in harmony and unity. 
and in love. It all begins right here in Philippians chapter 2. And the example is Jesus Christ. And so the next time that the smallest self-seeking, selfishly motivated, self-pleasing motive crops up in your heart, and you see it there and you identify it there, you go right back to Philippians chapter 2 and you realize that is sinful. That is nothing like my Lord. And my Lord died for that sin, but I need to humble myself. I need to lay aside my own interest and consider the interest of others as far more important than myself. May God give us the grace, because this is tough, isn't it? May God give us the grace to live just like that. Because friends, I know, because you're just like me, I know how selfish I am. And I know how self-seeking I am. And I know how wicked my own heart is. I know it full well. I, I can't speak for your heart, but just as Scripture says, you're just as wicked as I am. But I know in my own heart, this is hard stuff to swallow, isn't it? Because even when I think I'm humbling myself, and I realize I might be humbling myself for the wrong motives. Is that really humbling myself? Still seeking my own. So may God give us the grace to do exactly what the Lord Jesus did. To lay aside positions, to lay aside titles, to lay aside all of the, all of the exalted stuff that we hold so dear to, which is nothing. And to humble ourselves, which is an action. And to serve other people. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so grateful to You that You sent Your Son to die on a cross for us. And we are grateful to You, O Son of God, that You did die on a cross, took upon Yourself our sin, that You humbled Yourself and became obedient even to the point of death. And Lord, there is absolutely nothing in this life that we could ever do which might even come close to that type of condescension and humility. But we ask, God, that as Your people, as those indwelt by the Spirit of God, as those who love Your Word and love Your Son, that you would give us the grace to do that very thing, to humble ourselves for others, to consider the interests of others as more important than ourselves, and thus model the life, the ministry, and the mind of Christ even to each other. We thank you for our, our salvation. We thank you for your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.